Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is um, October the 6th, 2023, a Friday. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. It's an odd place, San Francisco. On the one hand, it lies on the edge of Silicon Valley. It's the future of the world, the future of technology, the West, uh, the future in many ways of business. And on the other hand, San Francisco these days is an oddly backward place full of enormous wealth and massive poverty, more feudal than 21st century. And I wonder whether <laughs> Rather than it being the new city, it's the old city uh, or a new city in old clothing. It's an appropriate discussion today because my guest on the show is uh, Dixon de Pommier. He is a longtime environmentalist, writer on cities and sustainability. And he has a new book out next week, The New City, How to Build Our sustainable urban future and he's joining us from new jersey today dixon congratulations on the new book i'm not sure how much time you've spent in san francisco i i heard a couple of grunts when i mentioned it so i assume you've spent a little bit of time here well i'll give you my history very briefly i was born in new orleans uh in 1940 my father who worked for a steamship company uh was also born in new orleans but during the onset of World War II, uh, he was transferred to San Francisco. So our family moved in uh, 19, late 1940. I mean, I, was, I, was, I wasn't even a year old, uh, from New Orleans to San Francisco, quite a climatic change as well as lots of other things, and spent most of my youth in the suburbs of San Francisco. Palo Alto was where my sister was born, uh, we grew up in San Leandro, which is a suburb, which probably now is almost as large as New York City. The way things have grown out there, it's hard to tell where one place stops and another one starts. And I lived there until I was 11, and then we moved to New York City, where he was transferred to the home office, which was uh, 5 Broad Street, New York City. So have you, since moving as an 11-year-old, have you spent much time back? Because it's changed dramatically, San Francisco, and I, the Bay I, Area yeah. since you left. Sure. No, I, I, I totally uh, am aware of that because I had many friends in my own profession, which is uh, actually a medical subject called parasitic diseases, that taught at UCSF. Uh, and many of them were also employed by uh, UC Berkeley. So I had uh, many opportunities to go out to San Francisco for professional meetings and uh, to commiserate with my uh, colleagues about lots of different uh, research problems that we were all working on. Um, and um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, 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 um, <laughs> it's hard to get my head around the fact that I actually came from that place because nothing as a child uh, resonates with me as an adult. You argue in the book that the new book, the, the new city, how to build our sustainable urban future, that cities are, are amongst humanity's crowning achievements. We've done a number of shows on that. Many urbanists have been, and I don't think there's much debate whether it's New Orleans or London or Paris, right. Hong Kong, San Francisco in its glory days. Yep. They're remarkable achievements. 
I know it's hard to generalize, but would it be fair to say, Dixon, that something's gone wrong with the early 21st century city around the world? Uh, fair is a mild way of expressing that, but yes, I would totally agree with you. I think when, when we reach maximum support size, that is the population now equals the input as to what it takes to maintain that population. And then when it exceeds that, and the city can no longer meet its requirements for electricity, water, shelter, transportation, uh, education, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. Then you can, you can understand why cities such as Paris would set up a barrier between the inner portion of Paris that you can't touch this. It's an historic monument. Then it's available to the world. You can come and see what the world used to look like. And the periphery of Paris has gone out of control. Uh, the same is true for virtually every major uh, megalopolis as we're used to talking about them. And China has more of them, I think, than any other country. And they're building them at an astounding rate. And they're following plans that have been laid down over the centuries rather than stopping and thinking about what could we do different if we had to start all over again. So... Given that we've taken the wrong path um, in the early 21st century, are there models for you as an urbanist um, in your book, The New City, when you think about sustainable urban futures? Are there models which may not be entirely replicable, but at least we can begin to build on their examples? Well, you know, you'd have to cobble together many different urban centers into one example because uh, all of the features of a livable habitat for humans uh, in one place does not currently exist there's always the hazard of getting killed riding your bicycle to work um, there's always the hazard of inhaling um, elements from industrialism which will cause you great bodily harm uh, there is um, also a the haves and the have-nots, as you've pointed out in your introduction, uh, using San Francisco as the example, but I think every major city falls into that same um, rhetoric of the haves and the have-nots. And of course, there are many, many, many more have-nots than there are haves. And they create barriers between themselves and the, the, the common folk that have to suffer and tough it out every day of their lives in places which... Um, they're unable to uh, change because they they really can't go anywhere else. They don't know any way of life other than the one that they've uh, been born into, so to speak. Um, it's very difficult to find examples of, uh, I wish we were more alike. Uh, so that's what actually motivated uh, myself and the class that I taught at Fordham to, if you had no restraints in terms of economics, or politics, <clears throat> what would your future city look like that would be habitable, not for you, not for your grandchildren, but rather for your great-grandchildren? How would you construct it so that it was a sustainable, living, uh, nurturing environment that still functioned as a large uh, commercial center, that still had uh, productivity as its prime goal, but also the safety of its citizens? And uh, believe it or not, these kids, and they were kids, 
uh, undergraduates uh, invented this book. Basically, I was sort of their Virgil well, leading them. This, this, uh, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if you you've read Thomas More's Utopia, his 16th century book, where he invented the term utopia. It was a satire or an imagining a better world. <laughs> his was a, a 16th century city. Is this a, a utopian endeavor? No, it's it's not, and we purposely avoided all of that by only constructing our new city out of things that already existed. So it's not utopian in the sense that we're hoping for new technologies that will save us from ourselves, our greed, our propensity to design unsafe places. Uh, we will start with a very safe place, a very nurturing place in which to populate, and uh, we'll proceed from there. So the, the physical structure of the city is really what we concentrated on. Not even the political systems that govern it, but rather, how would you create an urban environment for 100,000 people in which no one felt threatened by the transportation system, by the um, commercial district, which handles all kinds of interesting products that you're unaware of, but some of them are quite lethal if you ever encountered them. Uh, how would you do that? What, what would be the pieces of the puzzle that you could fit together uh, to make this a habitable center? And where would you locate it? And so for each of the projects that uh, have occurred over the last seven years, the students have selected uh, quite different places for each of those seven projects that you can access by going online and simply typing out Fordimopolis, which is the name of their new city. And you can what's see. What's the it, point of this? I mean, in, out here in Silicon Valley, sure, a group of very wealthy, yeah, uh, technologists, including Mark Andreessen and Reid Hoffman, they're doing exactly what your class at Fordham is doing, and they're putting where their their money, where their mouth is, and they're deciding they're designing an ideal city from scratch. At I, least I, that's I what they said. That's what they. Yeah, said. but I mean, in terms of your teaching, I, I don't really see the point. Oh, the point is that uh, if you can't imagine it, you'll never get it. If your imagination can't exceed the reality, the reality of the situation that you're currently living, um, where, where's the hope? Where's the future? You have to imagine a better future if you're going to have one. Well, we can all imagine a better future, but that doesn't make it really? realizable, especially when it comes to city. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone has the option of starting from scratch, except for these um, interesting billionaires. Uh, and I dare say that the plans that they have in order to base their new city on uh, are probably, they're not even aware of, of any of the things that I mentioned in my book. I'm, I'm almost well, sure. Well, I, I hope they'll read them. And actually, they're imagining well, well, their, their dream city, their new city isn't that far from San Leandro, where you grew up in the... I, I would like them to get a copy of my book. I'll, I'll gladly send it to each one of them free of charge. Well, I think they can probably afford to buy them. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I I'm still not convinced of the point of your project. Um, uh, I'm sure that the new city that you you and your students imagine is a is a very uh, a attractive place. But but so what? Well, what if it was an unattractive place? Then what would you say? Well. I wouldn't come on. You're you're lamenting okay, your situation. So you're lamenting your situation now in San Francisco. It's a rundown, um, tired, um, fragmented political, uh, less populated than it was 20 years ago. Place 
that's screaming for better infrastructure, uh, a more uh, amenable uh, way of, of uh, living a life. And by the way, I, I must uh, take exception to some of uh, that by saying that there are new ordinances recently passed by the San Francisco, I guess, Department of Environment, which I've had some dealings with, uh, in which every new constructed building of a certain size has to recover virtually every drop of water that it consumes for whatever purposes they're using the water for. They have to recycle re, um, that water into drinkable water within the building. The water can't leave that building. So the Salesforce building, which was put up about two years ago, has such a system in its basement for the recycling of every drop of water that uh, enters that building. And so if any water leaves, which it shouldn't, uh, it would be drinkable. And that's a remarkable turnaround for any city to have an ordinance that suggests a reasonable, recyclable, uh, circular economy for water. Uh, San Francisco certainly isn't short on water. It rains there a lot, so they're not short of it. Of course, they don't collect it, uh, which our city does, by the way. Uh, but but they, they at least see a brighter future for the resources that cities consume without thinking twice about discarding all the wastes. And that's the, that's the biggest problem. Cities contribute. They, they if you put them all together into a landmass, they would represent less than 2% of the landmass on this planet. They generate 60 to 70% of the greenhouse gases that are expelled into the atmosphere. And they're a major cause of climate change. And I can't think of a better way of starting a conversation about, well, how can we do this differently? I take your point. Also, what percentage Thank of you. people in the world <laughs> uh, live in cities? It's been increasing over the last 20 years. And 20 years ago, there might have been 45% of the total population on Earth that lived in what you might call a city. That is any, any habitable center that's got more than 250,000 people. Today, uh, over 55% of the world now lives in a city. It's the same city. The cities haven't changed much over that time. But so those people it, it, that are crowded into those cities are now suffering the stings and arrows of having to fend for themselves in a, an ever-increasingly difficult uh, resource-short uh, urban lifestyle. Uh, Dixon, let me push back. I, I take your point, as I said, on the, the Salesforce building, which dominates downtown San Francisco, what at least is left of downtown San Francisco. Right. But some people might say, and that might include myself, well, this is all very well, a multi-billionaire, uh, Mark, uh, 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 whatever his Cuban? name is. The, uh, Cuban? The, Cuban? Uh, no, not Cuban. Uh, the, the founder of and the CEO of, uh, of Salesforce, um, who is actually... A lot of people are very critical of him for what they see as his hypocrisy. So he's designed a wonderful city that has uh, a wonderful building that retains its water, as you say. Actually, I think that San Francisco probably gets less rainfall than other cities uh, because of global warming. But anyway, um, so that's a good thing. I mean, no one would be critical of that but meanwhile and maybe this isn't a, a, a criticism of, of of the um of uh of of salesforce 
But outside, the streets are full of homeless people. Mm -hmm. uh, outside, there's enormous, mm -hmm. appalling inequality. Outside, uh, there's no civic life in downtown San Francisco. No one, there's barely any infrastructure for public transportation. Right. So for all that wonderful building, I actually didn't know about the environmental aspect of the, of the, the, the Salesforce building. It doesn't really matter and in some ways it's very frustrating i mean it's not really a criticism of salesforce but more the the the, the broader situation well i i, <laughs> I want to go back to salesforce building because the owner of that building did not institute by themselves de novo the recycling of all that uh, potable water that was a law before the building was even designed right and they got their idea about how to do that from looking at Orange County, uh, California, which uh, has a, an enormous water recycling uh, center. And um, they've got all the bells and whistles that you could possibly imagine to take municipal water that's been used once and recycle it back into usable water twice or three times or 10 times or a million times for that matter. And so they took a smaller version of that and with a grant from the Gates Foundation, they convinced the builder of that Salesforce building to install a miniature Orange County water recycling unit, and it worked. So that don't 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 give the credit to the owner of that building. They may still be as uh, oh, jaded, yeah. jaded as they right, always no, were. No, and I take your point on the responsibility of the local authorities. But... So that's San Francisco city governance saying enough is enough. We're going to put a limit on resource utilization, and we're going to start recycling everything. And they do this with waste for um, McDonald's oil and stuff like this, and turning that back into biodiesel. They do a lot of good things in, in face of who's telling them to do this except themselves. They want to well, make it a more habitable place. They do want to do that. Well, I don't think anyone wouldn't want to, but... Um, well... Um, <laughs> if it costs a lot of money, then they might think twice about even saying. Well, except well, that uh, <laughs> you haven't been in the city recently. I mean, it's, no, I haven't. No, it's I haven't. increasingly uninhabitable. But anyway, we are talking with Dixon Despomier, the author of *The New City: How to Build Our Sustainable Urban Future*. Um, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a short ad for them, and then we'll be back and talk more specifically about what this sustainable urban future looks like. We'll try not to mention San Francisco too much. <laughs> Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Dixon Despomier, the author of a really interesting new book, an important new book, The New City, How to Build Our Sustainable Urban Future. Um, Dixon, at the uh, in the first half of the show, you talked about something called the circular economy. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Last month, I was in Munich for uh, a circular economy day at uh, DLD in Munich. A lot of interesting conversations. We had probably some of my guests you'll know from Europe. What exactly is a circular economy and how is it important in terms of the building of this new city? It's critical. It's not just important. It's absolutely essential. If you can't do it, then you shouldn't be building a city. Um, cities, let's just say, for instance, um, let's take me back to my roots. Um, I'm a, a card-carrying uh, parasitologist by training. I have a PhD in microbiology. I've studied parasites all my life. And I don't mean people from Paris. I'm talking about the kind that get entry into your body and make you sick. And they take advantage of you because you're an invaluable resource to them. You have all of what they need. And all you have to do is gain entrance. And then the next thing you know, the thing that they've gained entrance into starts to not feel exactly like they did before. Cities can be likened to that process as they sprung up around the world at the advent of the agricultural revolution. There were no cities prior to that. Uh, the first city in the world is at least acknowledged by most of the anthropologists as being in Jericho. And Jericho arose as the result of the fact that right next door, there was a wheat farm. And right next door to that, there was enough water to make the wheat grow. So they had everything they needed together in order to feed a lot of people without having them move around all the time and looking for their food. And cities grabbed a hold of that concept. And everywhere agriculture began, cities also began. And today, that's, that's how they started. They started with commerce as the critical center point for which urbanization ex expanded itself into what we now know today as modern culture. We invented mathematics, we had languages, written languages, we had um, arts and sciences, because we, eventually, we now had some le leisure time that we could sit and think about other things rather than where is my next meal going to come from. And that's the crux of the matter, because that was not circular by any means. It was linear. You would raise the wheat, you would harvest the wheat grains, you'd turn it into something like flour, or you'd store it. And then you would either sell it or you'd trade it for something that you didn't have that wheat could get you, like tools, weapons, etc. Cities began trade based on food. They used rice, barley, uh, wheat, and corn as their trade. That was their money. And uh, that's that hasn't stopped. I mean, you can today we have a raging conflict between a very large superpower russia and the ukraine which manufactures 20 percent of the wheat that europe consumes russia wants that wheat for themselves because they they don't have the land that's fertile enough to supply them with that kind of productivity and that's horrible when you think about what they're doing they're doing this all in the name of feeding the people in their own country. And the Romans established their behavior in the same way when they expanded beyond their ability to supply enough for themselves. They begin to parasitize the landscape. And that parasitism has accelerated into what city do you know that manufactures its own, one, energy, two, food, three, water, 
and at the same time could sequester carbon out of the atmosphere to help reverse or slow down this uh, rapid climate change that we're totally responsible for because of our behavior. Uh, that's that's basically what I'm driving at. So a circular economy is one which you make something, you consume it, and you take the waste products and you turn that back into something that you can then still use. And in the terms of water, uh, you don't have to do anything to it except purify it again. All you have to do is figure out a way to make it drinkable and you can reuse that water. How many places around the world do you think do that? And the answer is very very few. And water, as you know, is the essence of life. Without water, you can't have life. So let's begin with water as a circular economy. Um, New York City, I'll give you the example, uh, is a city with a 300 square mile footprint and an annual rainfall of 47 inches of rain. Do you know exactly how much water that represents in terms of a year's productivity? And the answer is it's over 260 billion gallons of water a year. New York City doesn't collect one drop, not one drop. Where do they get their water from? They get it from five different reservoirs in upstate New York that are all connected together by tunnels. And that water is brought to New York City and then it's consumed. Of course, it depends on water falling from the sky in the form of rain, but not in New York, it falls on the watersheds of New York. Now, how interesting would it be if New York City, that consumes 1.2 billion gallons of water per day, how interesting would it be for the New York City community in general to recycle half of that? You could recycle all of it if you really wanted to, but we don't recycle any of it. It's all treated and then discarded into the Hudson Estuary to then somehow deal with the wildlife that's found there. And since we've chlorinated the water, we've made it a little more difficult for those life forms to take advantage of this influx of water every day. So that's the kind of waste that we're talking about. Now, if you want a, a place that's absolutely dependent on rainwater and without it, they wouldn't exist, all you have to do is go to Bermuda. So the island of Bermuda, the Atlantic Ocean, in the middle of nowhere, is established on a coral atoll. So there's no groundwater there. So where do they get their water from? From the sky. They get their water from rainwater. And they all have specially designed roofs on their rooftops to collect it. There are 63,000 people living like that. And they get every drop of water from rainwater. When there's less rain, they do less with their water. When there's a lot of rain, they do a lot more. The biggest problem they have is what do we do with the wastewater? Because they have no groundwater to allow that to percolate through, to be cleansed again, to make it drinkable. So they're now instituting the same uh, kind of approach that Orange County, California has already done. And that is uh, using modern technology and reverse osmosis and filtration units, you can actually take used water, if you want to call it that, and remediate it. Right. So I take your point on water. That's a circular, that's a circular economy. But I take your point on water, and I don't think anyone would argue with you on that, but... Oh, they might. Well... New York City would. Okay, but... 
Um, well, it's a big city. Come on, that's eight million people. Right. So I take your point on water, but you know, if you write a book called The New City, it's more than just water. You wrote a book called The Vertical Farm Feeding the World in the 21st Century. Yes, I did. What else needs to happen in this new city? Okay. In addition That's... to water. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> no, I can make it quick. Um, so you have three essentials that if you don't have those, you don't have a city. So you don't have any water, circular economy. You don't have any food, vertical farms, not just vertical farms. Every building in my city will manufacture some kind of food item. It's mostly vegetables. Uh, there are some exceptions, of course. You can have fish farming and things like this, but mostly it's uh, essential vegetables. Uh, but if every building were to have a, uh, a specially constructed portion of it devoted to food production, so that it could account for all the calories that the entire city produce, uh, consumes. That's a circular economy with regards to food. Now, granted, not everybody's going to be a vegetarian. So you'll have to accommodate some. Uh, so, but is that realistic, having every building? Uh, are you suggesting that be How dare you ask if it's realistic? Of course not. You know, nothing is realistic until you've done it. Is it realistic? Has any, has any is it, in is the it world realistic? even begun to dabble in this idea? Of... Yeah, 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 they have. Is it, any, is it realistic to go to the moon, for instance? What the hell are we doing up there? We're trying to escape from this planet, basically, because it's getting too difficult to live on it. So what cities are doing examples of vertical farming that for you is might be a model for other cities new york right. San sure at this point uh, it's not a city or a commercial uh, venture that's uh, being sponsored by governments uh, but that 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 having been said the emirates are definitely investing heavily in vertical farming uh, not just for themselves but also for their industries like for instance emirate airlines emirate airlines has a huge vertical farm that produces produce for all of its flights. Um, New Jersey has several vertical farms, one of which, Aero Farms, produces um, food for Singapore Airlines that leaves out of Newark Airport. Uh, we have examples of that wherever you look now. But the, infant, uh, the book that I wrote was written in 2010. This is now 2023. That's 13 years down the road. Uh, that's not enough time for an industry to mature enough so that I could say, yeah, well, this country does it and that country doesn't do it. Uh, yeah, I have to admit, I'm not convinced on, the, on that. But what, what's the third area that you think is essential? So there's water, there's food. And what's the third? Energy. Energy. And how would that work? I mean, what's the biggest problem? Pollution. So Period. what need to happen in this new city to address... Yeah sustainability when it comes to energy sure, sure. They, they need to adopt a pollution free within the city accessed energy and i can give you the example and it's going to take over the world in another i'd say maybe 15 to 20 years from now everybody will be doing this and that is hydrogen fuel cells explain you more. went to munich you went to munich you said you went to munich uh, all of the trains, I've been informed, you may know different, but I have been informed that all of the train systems of Germany now run on hydrogen fuel cells. 
So buildings can run on hydrogen fuel cells. Cars can run on, you see BMW, Volvo, uh, Toyota, they're all moving towards hydrogen fuel cell technologies. Then, and it's getting easier and easier to do. And there are companies now making electrolysis units, which takes any kind of water. After you filter it, you can derive the hydrogen and the oxygen from it by splitting it apart chemically. The oxygen goes back in the atmosphere, the hydrogen is sequestered. Now when you combine them back together, they generate lots of heat. That heat boils the water, the boiling water creates steam, the steam drives a piston, the piston, you got the idea. That's circular, very, very circular. You can't get more circularity than that. And the waste product from hydrogen fuel cells is um, water. And in this ideal world that you're imagining, which... Uh, yeah, not so ideal. Not so ideal. I wouldn't put it that way. But well, you're going to accuse me of being an, um, I, I, a I utopianist. To, I'm really uh, not. I mean, there is an element of utopia. Anyway, it's a matter of opinion. Um, what happens to the countryside? We've done a number of shows. Yeah, good idea. Uh, good idea. Um, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with the work of Tony Hiss, who, who talks about uh, separating America into places where there should be no development versus the city. Uh, you're in a sense in this circular economy in the new city. You're you're collapsing, I guess, the countryside with vertical farming and the city. What, what becomes of the countryside in this world? <laughs> no, stop right there. What's becoming of the countryside without vertical farming? <laughs> I wouldn't even throw vertical farming into the conversation. What's happening is that farming is failing in everywhere you look. Crop failures are regular features of every country now. There isn't one that hasn't had them. This causes an accumulation of resources which are tremendously unequally distributed. Why is that the bottleneck? And it's because everybody has to eat. So what if everybody could eat because they made their own food? They can do that. There's nothing stopping them. Not a, there's no law against that, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. There are no laws that says, I can't grow my own food in my own house. That's crap. They can grow whatever they want. We now have two vertical farms in the world that are beyond experimenting on growing wheat so that they can replace the failing wheat farms that are succumbing to global climate change. And that's a, the circular economy there is to use some of the rainwater that falls on the city uh, to drive those vertical farms that are using aeroponics, which uses about 95% less water than outdoor farms. Then, then you can say, well, what happens to the outside? All that food used to come from the outside. What are you gonna do? And the answer is very simple, because if you ask a farmer, what's their favorite crop to grow? 90% will say the one that gives me the most return on my investment. They don't give a damn as to what crop they grow as long as they get a return on their investment. So what if we said to them, how would you like to be a carbon farmer? And they'll look at me like, what are you crazy? No, 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 listen to me. Take this cornfield, don't harvest any more corn. Don't do anything to it. I want you to abandon it. And you still own the cornfield, though. 
because buried in the soil in that cornfield are the seeds of trees that you didn't give a chance to because you were herbiciding it and you were keeping them from germinating. I want them to germinate. I want to return this land to what it used to be, an ecologically functional forest that supports carbon sequestration. That's what I want. And then I want you to selectively harvest just the young trees. And I want you to convert those trees into something called cross-laminated timber. And cross-laminated timber in Europe is the common building material that they say, why would I ever want to use concrete and steel and glass when I can use cross-laminated timber, which is cheap, easy to make, easy to put together, easy to disassemble, and that's carbon sequestration. An entire city can be made out of carbon. And where would all, you know, this is, as yeah, we, we can disagree on this, for me, this is all, it's interesting, but enormously <laughs> utopian. Where is this all going to come from? An enlightened government? You talked about uh, the Emirates. Perhaps it may come from an authoritarian government like that or Saudi or Singapore. No, it can't most, come people don't want to build, most people don't want to grow their own food, Dixon. They just simply don't. Maybe it's they're lazy. Maybe they don't know how to, but they're just not interested. <laughs> Let's take a building of an apartment complex that has 300 families living in it. All right? I live in one of those buildings. It wouldn't take more than 10% of the population of that building to participate in the labor force needed to operate that vertical farm. And in return for that, they get to keep the food that they're producing free. In fact, everybody living in that building has to cycle through that work system. It's not a labor intensive, it's not heavy work. It's management basically, troubleshooting. Because most of the equipment that's used to raise food nowadays is driven by AI and grow lights and modern technologies that uh, don't require huge amounts of physical labor. Imagine every building now doing that. So, but where, where is all this going to come from? Is it going to come from government edicts? How the hell would I know I'm a biologist? Then what's the point of imagining it if, 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 if it's not? No, like don't that. you dare go there. That's a ridiculous. Andrew, shame on you. Why? Shame on you. Shame on you. Why? Shame. I mean, it's upset. No, I mean, shame I... on you. Shame on you. You should not ever say that about Why? somebody thinking out of the box. Well, it's everybody's, fine doing it. Everybody's allowed to go out of the box. Now, it's up to you, not me, you, to find a practical solution. Here's the blueprint. Find a practical solution. Do you think my book on vertical farming had any instructions on how to make a vertical farm? None. And most of the criticism early on when the book came out was just that. I bought this book on vertical farming and there were no instructions on how to do it. Well, you stupid people, why don't you read the book first? The book says why we should have vertical farms, not how we should have vertical farms. And the same is true for this. Why should we have a new city? Because if you look at the United Nations edict on the harm that cities do to the environment, they're responsible for 60% of the greenhouse gases that are produced that cause rapid climate change. What I'm doing is offering you one of many possibilities of interfering with that process. And 
whether you say don't do it or not, it's not going to stop me from doing it. <laughs> In fact, I've already done it. People that think like this are not practical thinkers. None of us are practical thinkers unless you question all of these technologies that I'm raising as possible circularities for the way cities behave. If you're saying that I'm inventing new technologies that don't exist, or if we could only capture this, or if you could only do that. No, no, no. These are all being done now. Andrew, every one of these things uh, is I being done. Right, but, uh, and again, it's, <laughs> some people might be listening to this saying, here's this old guy. Yeah, they might. They might. Yeah, crazy they might. ideas that are you entirely bet. unrealistic. Why That's not just right. focus on stuff that can be done? Not that. <laughs> you didn't listen to me. I did listen to you. No, you didn't. How would you respond to that? I just, I just did. I just said, I'm not suggesting anything in my book that hasn't already been done. What I'm suggesting in my book is that all of these things that are disparately located be brought together in the same building. That hasn't been done yet. That's just a matter of engineering. <laughs>